You're listening to the ANA Podcast Network, powered by Odyssey, a leading multi-platform audio content and entertainment company. Listen on the Odyssey app. For Beyond Profit, a podcast of the ANA Center for Brand Purpose, I'm Ken Beaulieu. Building an enduring brand in a world that seeks overnight success and instant gratification is not for the faint of heart. It requires leaders with long-term ambitions who can stare down market disruptions, generational shifts, and other challenges. And in doing so, they are building their own modern legacies that they hope will stand the test of time. Mark Miller is at the forefront of legacy building with purpose at the core. As founder of the Legacy Lab, an award-winning research lab in strategic consultancy, he helps business leaders identify and define their career ambitions and write history. Mark has spent years exploring the minds and methods of legacy leaders across a wide range of industries, which are captured in his book, Legacy in the Making, Building a Long-Term Brand to Stand Out in a Short-Term World, co-authored by Lucas Connolly. A Washington Post bestseller, Legacy in the Making codifies the behaviors of brands that stay vibrant over time. Mark Miller, who also serves as Chief Strategy Officer for the branding agency Team One, joins me to discuss the key attributes of legacy builders, why having a long-term view is critical, why brands should focus on being unique, and much more. Mark, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. So, Mark, I do want to give you a few minutes to sort of explain how the Legacy Lab came about, its mission, and your critical role in all of it. Well, I am, as you uh, said in the introduction, the chief strategy officer at an agency, an ad agency called Team One, which is a division of the Publicis Group. And uh, the story about the work we started doing on the Legacy Lab actually goes back a little over a decade now. It was uh, in and around the year 2012. The strategy team that I was leading and myself were working on a couple of very interesting assignments uh, for brands that were coming up on milestone anniversaries. In specific, we were doing some work for an iconic automotive brand and concurrently some work for an iconic hotel brand. And what was fascinating was these two iconic brands looked at their successes in very different ways. So specifically, the automotive company was turning 25 or getting ready to turn 25, but they wondered if 25 years was too young to celebrate because many of their competitors had been around for much longer. Meanwhile, the hotel company, which was getting ready to turn 30, wondered if 30 was too old because in their category, it seemed much better to be the brand new anything than the older something. And as I said, both brands were very successful. And so that motivated our team of strategists at Team One to start exploring the topic. And here's what we did. We looked at brands that were younger versus older. We looked at struggling brands versus thriving brands. We studied domestically, we studied globally, and we learned that legacy matters tremendously However, when it is reframed as more of a long-term and forward-looking concept, when brands are writing the pages of history each day versus writing from the pages of ancient history. Um, you're the belief, Mark, that brand leaders need to reframe legacy as something that is earned in the present, not simply borrowed from the past. I'm hoping you can shed a little more light on that. As uh, you have seen and many of your listeners would be familiar with, it seems like those in the C-suite are rotating those rotating through those positions faster than ever before. Um, and as a consequence, we uh, have observed something that we refer to as the short-term thinker's blind spot, that these leaders who are moving into these roles for a very short amount of time do one of two things. 
They either hold tight to the past because they want to minimize risk and they repeat the successes that came before them because after all, if something goes wrong, who can blame you for repeating what once worked before? So as I said, it seems to mitigate risk. Meanwhile, on the other side, there are those who disregard everything from the past and pursue doing something entirely new with the aim of being famous, with the aim of primarily building their resume and getting their next high-paying job in the shortest amount of time yeah. possible. In contrast, those who start with the idea of building valuable or enduring brands look at the world through a different lens. They look at their history as a compass that points them forward versus an anchor that holds them back. They look to what their brand has done to motivate how they will adapt even through changing times. Effectively, these aren't the leaders who are building resumes. They're ones who are building enduring legacies for the brands that they've either founded and or are currently responsible for carrying forward for generations to come. Easier said than done is this concept of legacy building. So what's your message to folks who come to you? Well, it's fantastic. I would say, um, well, I don't know if they would agree it's fantastic. I would say it's fantastic <laughs> because as a strategist, I love to solve problems. And and what I do observe is particularly from those who are occupying these positions that are very short-term focused, they will tend to come in with an assignment that looks something like this. I want to make X number of millions or billions of dollars. I need to do it in this very short window, a sales period, a particularly important point in the season, because when I hit my numbers, either my shareholders and or our internal organization will place a tremendous value on it. And when you follow up with the question, to what end, uh, other than make the short-term numbers, often there isn't a very great answer or good answer for that. Sometimes there is, but often there isn't. And so when we tend to start our conversations, we tend to look at it through sort of just a different perspective, which is in a year from now, in three years from now, in five years from now, when your brand's succeeding at the highest level, what are you working toward? What will you have achieved? Because if you know where you're going someday, you can hit all your numbers today. In fact, while it seems counterintuitive, through our research, long-term thinking is actually the best short-term strategy. Because once again, when you know where you're going someday, you're better equipped to make quick, nimble changes, even through the most turbulent times, some of which we're living through right now. Yvonne Schwenard of Patagonia, a retired founder classic example of a legacy builder. I mean, he's he's for years shown his commitment to making a lasting impact on the world. For folks like him and others, these true legacy builders, what are the key attributes that they share? Yvonne is someone that I admire tremendously. In fact, he was one of the founders of an organization that I had the opportunity, that I had the opportunity to interview as we were uh, researching and eventually writing our book. And in fact, I was so inspired by uh, the interview and the learnings that I asked if he would write the forward to our book, and he did. So I have um, a special place in my heart and my mind and in our work for Yvonne and, and Patagonia. With that said, whether you look at Yvonne or any of the leaders that we write about uh, over the course of our learning and writing and publishing, there seem to be five traits that define those who are building a modern legacy, the ones that endure. And the five traits go like this. They take leadership personally. They behave their beliefs. They let outsiders in. They invent their own game, and they make legacy every day. And I'll add a little bit of uh, information around that. So these aren't just catchphrases and buzz <laughs> phrases, but they're actually something that mm -hmm. a, a marketer or founder could use. So when I talk about taking leadership personally, I think the old adage goes something like this. There is what happens in our personal life, and there is what happens in work. And those two things shouldn't meet. If you have a hobby, a passion, or something you love, explore that beyond the walls of work. 
business is for business and everything else beyond that is for your personal life. But in actuality, leaders and founders like Yvonne, the ones who are building businesses that endure, seem to take their business very personally. They either start with a problem that they want to solve that they care about tremendously and or they want to advance a belief that they care about passionately. So they don't separate work and personal. They combine the two. Separately, I mentioned the idea of behaving your beliefs. And what that means is you don't just write taglines and slogans and manifestos and create credo cards and give people t-shirts and mugs that say <laughs> the right things, but that actually through good times and bad, particularly bad, these become not just words written down on a piece of paper, but words to live by. And I think that's when leaders and organizations tend to really show their value and worth. Their durability is how do they respond through the most turbulent times? Do they do the things that they say they're going to do? Mm -hmm. I talked about behaving your beliefs, and I just shared the example. Then I want to move on to letting outsiders in. And letting outsiders in means you don't just sell at consumers, but you collaborate with them, you create with them, and you co-create with them. You treat them like stakeholders and shareholders. You treat them like they matter, because when they consume your products and services and experiences, they're the ones who take those stories and carry them forward. So they shouldn't be treated as outsiders that simply receive what we sell to them. But as I shared, co collaborators, co-creators, people who are invested in the work that we're doing, that they, in a sense, have a belief in what we care about as brand makers as much as us. Mm -hmm. The fourth aspect that I talked about was inventing your own game. Uh, fundamentally, I think the way I would look at that is we used to just think we should be the best at what we do. If we're incrementally better than the nearest competitor, we will win in our categories. But in fact, the ones who build things that are enduring don't just endeavor to be the best at what they do. They never endeavor to be the only ones who do it. They look to culture, not just their category for inspiration. And if you ask why, the reason is quite simple, which is when we're fundamentally the same or similar, just incrementally better than the brands to the left or right, we become fundamentally substitutable and switchable at the lowest price possible. Mm -hmm. But when you're the only ones doing it, you more likely become irreplaceable and worth it, maybe not at every price, but worth it certainly at higher prices. And then finally, I talked about making legacy every day. And I, I think the way I'd like to describe this one would go something like this. There are plenty of brands who at one point in their life did something noteworthy, remarkable, and interesting. And they live off that story forever even when they're no longer behaving in the spirit in which they were created. Meanwhile, the ones who endure find ways to not just read from the pages of history, but write new pages of history every day. Uh, so they don't look at their history as a compass that holds them back, or they look at it as a, a not an anchor that holds them back, rather, but as a compass that points them forward in perpetuity. Building legacy every day, you've mentioned this a couple of times now, Mark, has to be a challenge in difficult times, I would assume. For certain, because uh, if you're a short-term thinker, you simply look at what's in front of you and say, quite reasonably, there is no tomorrow if we can't make it through today. And as a consequence, you're more likely to make decisions that you think are just, if we just get through the moment, we compromise for a little bit, then we'll get past it and we'll get back to being the company that we said we were to ourselves and our consumers. And that gets very tricky because... If you can't behave your beliefs in the worst of times, then why does it matter that you behave it in the best of times? And I could give uh, a myriad of examples. I'll pick one from the Lexus brand. This is one of my favorites because uh, Lexus launched in 1989, and they launched behind a tagline, a quite famous tagline, which was the relentless pursuit of perfection. 
but more than a tagline, they were really words that defined what the company believed. And the reason it mattered was only a few months into the life of the launch of that brand, there were some complaints from purchasers about issues on their flagship vehicle. And so imagine that you signal to the world, new brand, we're going to relentlessly pursue perfection. But meanwhile, your top of the line product is having problems. Now, for context, um, it wasn't pervasive. It wasn't all the models. It wasn't the same issue in all the models. And I think the way most organizations would handle information like that or problems like that, particularly at launch, although realistically, at most times in a brand's life, they would deal with the problems on a one-to-one basis. They wouldn't over-invest to fix the problem. They would do minimum compliance. And they probably would aim to keep it out of the press because why would you focus on problems? And in this case, when you say that you're aiming for near perfection, but that's not what Lexus did. They actually said their long-term ambition isn't to just make weekly, monthly, quarterly, annual uh, returns effectively for, for dealers and dealer principals. For their, for their owners and shareholders. Their ambition was to create customers for a lifetime. Mm-hmm. And so when you look further ahead and your long-term ambition is to create customers for a lifetime and you tell them you're going to pursue perfection, well, they invested quite heavily at the beginning. They didn't treat this on a one-to-one basis. They said, let's make sure there aren't problems with any of the vehicles. They recalled them all. And if you didn't live anywhere near a dealership, they sent someone out to your home to service the problem, take care of the problem, if you had to be separated from your vehicle for any reason, they put you in a, a vehicle of equal value, not later, uh, not lesser value, and they created customers uh, for a lifetime. So they did it pervasively. They treated people exceptionally. They did it at personal cost or the organizational cost, and they didn't hide it from the public. In fact, they revealed it to say, this is so important to us that this is how we're going to treat the situation. And the consequence of that is They've created customers for a lifetime, a tremendously high volume customer base, a tremendously loyal customer base, tremendously satisfied and successful Lexus dealers because they made the investment in the beginning to not just minimize the problem, but to achieve something greater, which is a long-term loyalty and satisfaction and so on. So we've talked about the everyday. You've also mentioned the fact that it's important to look five, 10 years down the road. How does that help folks make better short-term decisions. I'm hoping you can just talk a little bit about that. Uh, One of the interviews that we did uh, was this brand called Taylor Guitars. Uh, I myself grew up in a family that loved music. We all learned how to play. (laughs) My brother and sister and I all learned how to play piano and guitar. Taylor Guitars is a brand that I admire tremendously. And I had the chance to speak to the co-founders of that brand and that business. And Kurt Listig, one of the co-founders, was the one who introduced that specific bit of language, which was he will look 10 years ahead in making any important decision and ask himself if in 10 years from now, we will be happier with this decision, that we will be better off as an organization for this decision, then will we do the hard work now to help us get there? And as a consequence, they were an upstart company that's coming up on their 50-year milestone. There have been Companies have been around for far longer in that space that's leading in the space. Because they've made investments, whether it's in manufacturing, uh, sustainable manufacturing, whether it's in innovation and changing the way guitars are made, which was an industry that had done things the same way for many years, whether it's about hiring practices, whether it's about global and or domestic distribution, they've made significant investments to create a brand that now leads in a space as a consequence of always looking much further ahead. Mark, I'm a a baby boomer and and I care deeply about my legacy. 
Is that sentiment being shared, do you feel, across generations? It was fascinating, and this is so important to me because every time uh, we talk about the subject of legacy, the inherent inclination is to say, ah, I get it. We're talking about brands that have been around for 100 years or longer, and we're talking about what's written about you in retrospect. And actually, the focus of our research, having spent time with brands of different generations, consumers of different generations, is that legacy matters tremendously when it's considered as a forward-looking concept. So rather than living off the stories that were written 100 years ago, it's about what we're doing today and what we're doing tomorrow to build on the stories we started a long time ago. And yeah, that's actually incredibly relevant to consumers and really people of all generations. We might use slightly different words. We might express it in slightly different ways. But there are plenty of young people, for example, uh, who want to build businesses that are making enduring contributions in the medical space, in the technology space. Mm -hmm. Uh, There are plenty of young people who want to put music out in the world and have that music listened to and heard. There are plenty of young people who want to change categories and invent categories that we haven't even seen before. And they're doing it because they want to make positive long-term impact. Is it true that there are people who just want to make a lot of money and could care less about anything else? Yes. But is it also true that you could make a lot of money by making long-term positive contribution to the world? That is also true. I I think it's a a misconception that the choice is do something purposeful or do something that makes profit. In fact, if you start out from the point of view of how can I make long-term positive contribution, you can actually, as it turns out, be quite successful financially doing that as well. Hello, Beyond Profit listener. Since 1982, the ANA Nonprofit Federation has led the way in providing the professional education, peer networking, and trusted guidance that nonprofits need to advance their missions and grow giving. We understand the critical impact nonprofits have in the world and the challenges they face across the sector. The ANA Nonprofit Federation has your back so you can move forward. Learn how by visiting ana.net slash Beyond Nonprofit. And now, back to the show. I'm speaking today with Mark Miller, founder of the Legacy Lab. So sharing stories of these great legacy builders is key to the Legacy Lab. Can you just talk about the kind of information that you mine from your clients? Well, a lot of our work starts in exploring uh, the five principles that we spoke about uh, a little bit earlier in the discussion, this notion of taking leadership personally, behaving your beliefs, letting outsiders in, inventing your own game, and making legacy uh, every day. Initially, of course, we didn't start with those principles. We started with people that we admired, brands that we admired, and, and learned all kinds of information about what they were pursuing, how they built their success, how it was lasting, how they pay it forward. Um Some of the really fascinating learning had to do with how you move it from one generation of leadership to the next, and or even how you scale these ideas from a small startup where it's easy to have principles to extrapolating it across large organizations where you have to get many people to buy into that kind of thinking as well. So there's all kinds of particularly interesting learning that's happened along the way. One of my favorite stories to share, uh, relevant to to your question, is we also went down the path within the past few years of quantifying and measuring these values and putting all kinds of organizations through the research tool to figure out how they were doing in their journey. Um, So we worked with the top 100 US business schools. They nominated hundreds of brands. We had thousands of consumers do an evaluation. We're able to rank these brands. And we learned one additional thing that I think is particularly important that I would pass along to listeners. And that is 
In addition to these five values, there is no doubt that the product or service or experience that you create fundamentally has to be of high quality. You can't just be an organization that has high principles and has just okay or less than products or services. And I think this can get lost in the discussion because we can emotionally get invested in this idea of principles matter, ideology matters, purpose matters. But there have been plenty of brands who've launched behind those platforms that simply don't succeed or endure. I used Lexus as a very positive example. I can contrast that with a brand that some may or may not be familiar with called Saturn. Saturn was an automotive brand that when initially launched was loved in the media. They basically took on the point of view that many automotive buying experiences were not exceptional from the consumer point of view. They were great if you were a dealer, but they were bad if you were a customer. You didn't feel comfortable. Sometimes uh, if you were a, a woman in specific, you would feel that males, men who were selling would talk down to you. Um, sometimes it felt like the price wasn't always transparent. There, there were a lot of cliches about buying vehicles that Saturn said, you know what, we're going to deposition that. They talked about caring for the person. They talked about the treatment of the individual. They talked about transparency and how they did work. Um, they talked about if you're a woman and you want to speak to a woman, you can do that here. And there were plenty of people who loved the ide ideology and philosophy, but the brand didn't last because the loyalty wasn't very high because the products weren't particularly well-made. And I think it's no more complicated than, you know, at one point I'd said, we think it's a forced choice uh, for profit or for purpose. And actually, you can do both. And I think in this case, the learning from our research and our measurement is it's great to have ambition and or and or purpose. But that can't be absent of making things that are actually exceptional. You want to make the world a better place? Fantastic. You also have to put exceptional things into the world. I remember reading a statistic, Mark, saying that 75% of the brands could go away and consumers could care less. So does that speak to what you're talking about? Probably the, these, these brands don't have the kind of quality of product that they should have. I think that's absolutely true. And there are all kinds of data points these days, which indicate that brands are disappearing faster than they've ever disappeared before. Mm -hmm. And so as we began, my motivation for a lot of the research or our team's motivation for this research had to do with working on some business problems. We were looking at an uh, iconic automotive brand, an iconic hotel brand. But the reality is even before COVID happened, brands were going into bankruptcy and are disappearing at an alarming rate coming out of that period. I still think there are a lot of questions about the relevance of certain brands and certain categories. I think it's very hard to be in business these days. And when you think about the time, money, energy, and effort that goes into launching something into the world, and you look at the statistics at the pace and rate with which things are disappearing, I think there's a compelling argument to be made that it's worthwhile looking a little bit further ahead if it means that you'll make better choices and decisions today such that you endure over a longer period of time. I wonder if you could just share a couple of less well-known legacy builders that you're particularly fond of. I have a story that I love to tell, and it's about a brand called Me and the Bees Lemonade, which is a brand started by a four-and-a-half-year-old founder in Austin, Texas. And the story goes kind of something like this. Michaela Ulmer, who is the founder of Me and the Bees, was stung by two bees in the same week when she was four-and-a-half years old. And if you've ever been stung by bees, that's you know it's not fun. And if you've been <laughs> stung by two bees in the same week, you would know that would really be not fun. And if you're a young child, that would be especially uh, traumatic. 
Well, Michaela's parents used it as a teachable moment. They said, rather than being traumatized, why don't we do some research and learn about bees? And what young Michaela had learned at the time was that bees actually do so much good in the world that because of bees, she gets to enjoy her favorite foods because bees pollinate. And so what Michaela did was she took a grandmother's, her grandmother's recipe for lemonade, an heirloom recipe, and she replaced the sweetener in it with honey from bees. And she sold it with the idea that some proceeds would go toward creating healthy bee populations. So this young lady who was uh, stung by bees was now going into business in a sense to advocate for them. And it's such a charming story that it actually metaphorically caught fire. She uh, wound up on a TV show called Shark Tank. She got a $60,000 investment from Damon John. She wound up with distribution in Whole Foods Market. She was on some of your favorite uh, morning talk show. She was invited to the White House and her story was being spread all over the place such that a farmer in California sent a letter from a lawyer to Michaela and her family. And he didn't send it as a person talking to a family and a child. He sent it as the proprietor, owner, founder of a business uh, talking to another business. And it effectively said, this was all fun and games when you were a little girl selling lemonade in Austin on your front lawn, but now your brand name is everywhere and mine isn't. It's a problem because your brand name sounds a whole lot like my brand name. And so you have to change that. She was given a short window to do it. There was no tolerance that she was a young lady. It was, you're basically violating what I have protected. So you have a short window to make a change. And there was the implication, if not um, explicit, a reference to the idea that she probably wouldn't be selling anything with the word bees in it and it probably wouldn't be a lemonade and you know sort of good luck good luck to you and so what michaela did was she turned uh, to those who supported her story to express what she could about the problem but more than that look for a solution and what her community her hive of supporters came back to her with was this notion of you know, they can make you change your name, but they can never make you change your story. And that was pivotal because trademarking anything with bees in it was very hard to do. But she wrote the name of her new brand as if it were the title of her story. It's the story of me and the bees that she could get a trademark on. And so this person who tried to put her out of business in the short term actually wound up putting her really in business in the long term because she was very clear about what she was doing and why she was doing it as a consequence or as a result. She got more distribution in Whole Foods. Today, she's in Target. She wrote and uh, distributed a best-selling book. She was invited back to all those same talk shows. She was invited back to the White House. And as I said, her stories become elevated and amplified, not diminished or muted, because she knew what she was aiming to solve over the long term. What a great story. Thank you for sharing that. And she's a good example, obviously, of a next generation of legacy builder. And I know that's near and dear to your heart. Can you just talk about a scholarship fund that, that you've uh, launched that is was established especially for this purpose? When we uh, started this program, our research program, our commitment to those on the those who were sharing their stories, our commitment was that we would share all that we learned. We weren't trying to hoard the information we wanted to share because our idea is we wanted more brands and businesses and leaders who acted and behaved just like uh, these leaders did. And as a consequence of sharing, uh, we had the opportunity to write a book for McGraw-Hill Education, which we did. And when the book became successful, we reminded one another that the reason we did this 
wasn't to make billions of dollars, but to share just like we said that we would. And so we took proceeds from the book and we established a foundation, the Legacy Lab Foundation, and we established a scholarship program. We've run a few of them, but this is our fifth year of running a program specifically with college-age students. Uh, the call for submissions went out in September. Uh, it's a national program. We receive uh, hundreds of submissions and it grows every year. Um, and the stories are just remarkable about students solving all kinds of problems that are important to them and not just dreaming about what they might do someday, but actually making a meaningful difference in the world. Uh, last year's recipient was someone named or is someone named Antoinette Banks. She's the author of a book called Better Than a Diagnosis, A Single Parent's Guide to Autism. And she's the CEO and the founder of something called Expert IEP, which is a multi-award-winning educational technology company that supports parents of students who learn differently. Antoinette is also a PhD student in learning mind sciences at UC Davis. And what I find particularly remarkable about the story is we weren't the only ones to see uh, the magic and the wisdom of what she's putting to the world. I believe just this past week, uh, she received a million dollar investment in the work that she's putting into the world as well. So these are, on the one hand, young people with ideas in their infancy, but they're people with wisdom and access to resources who see the long-term potential for this, who are making material uh, investment and creating positive long-term change. And for me, that's one of the sort of proudest moments of, of all of this, which is we're choosing to live by the words that we write. We're not just writing words and hoping people read them. Terrific. What a great way to end. Mark Miller, thank you so much for joining me on Beyond Profit. I appreciate it. Thank you. To learn more about legacy building, please visit The Legacy Lab. That's The Legacy Lab. And if you would like to recommend a topic or speaker for this podcast, please email me at brandpurpose at ana.net. Until next time, thanks for listening. This has been a presentation of the ANA Podcast Network, powered by Odyssey.